Section 42 of Volume 1C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1C Section 42, Chapter 35, Part 3. The great object at this time of antipathy among the Protestant sects was popery, or more properly speaking, the Papists. These they regarded as the common enemy, who threatened every moment to overwhelm the evangelical faith and destroy its partisans by fire and sword. They had not as yet had leisure to attend to the other minute differences among themselves, which afterwards became the object of such furious quarrels and animosities, and threw the whole kingdom into combustion. Several Lutheran divines who had reputation in those days, Bucer, Peter Martyr, and others, were induced to take shelter in England, from the persecutions which the emperor exercised in germany and they received protection and encouragement john alasco a polish nobleman being expelled his country by the rigours of the catholics settled during some time at embden in east friesland where he became preacher to a congregation of the reformed foreseeing the persecutions which ensued he removed to England and brought his congregation along with him. The council, who regarded them as industrious, useful people, and desired to invite over others of the same character, not only gave them the Church of Augustine Friars for the exercise of their religion, but granted them a charter by which they were erected into a corporation consisting of a superintendent and four assisting ministers. This ecclesiastical establishment was quite independent of the Church of England, and differed from it in some rites and ceremonies. These differences among the Protestants were matter of triumph to the Catholics, who insisted that the moment men departed from the authority of the Church, they lost all criterion of truth and falsehood in matters of religion, and must be carried away by every wind of doctrine. The continual variations of every sect of Protestants afforded them the same topic of reasoning. The Book of Common Prayer suffered in England a new revisal, and some rites and ceremonies which had given offence were omitted. The speculative doctrines, or the metaphysics of religion, were also reduced to forty-two articles, these were intended to obviate further divisions and variations, and the compiling of them had been postponed till the establishment of the liturgy, which was justly regarded as a more material object to the people. The eternity of hell torments is asserted in this confession of faith, and care is also taken to inculcate not only that no heathen how virtuous soever, 
can escape an endless state of the most exquisite misery, but also that every one who presumes to maintain that any pagan can possibly be saved, is himself exposed to the penalty of eternal perdition. The theological zeal of the council, though seemingly fervent, went not so far as to make them neglect their own temporal concerns, which seemed to have ever been uppermost in their thoughts. They even found leisure to attend to the public interest, nay, to the commerce of the nation, which was, at that time, very little the object of general study or attention. The trade of England had anciently been carried on altogether by foreigners, chiefly the inhabitants of the Hans towns, or Easterlings, as they were called, and in order to encourage these merchants to settle in England, they had been erected into a corporation by Henry the Third, had obtained a patent, were endowed with privileges, and were exempted from several heavy duties paid by other aliens. So ignorant were the English of commerce that this company, usually denominated the merchants of the still-yard, engrossed even down to the reign of Edward almost the whole foreign trade of the kingdom, and as they naturally employed the shipping of their own country, the navigation of England was also in a very languishing condition. It was therefore thought proper by the council to seek pretenses for annulling the privileges of this corporation, privileges which put them nearly on an equal footing with Englishmen in the duties which they paid, and as such patents were, during that age, granted by the absolute power of the king, men were the less surprised to find them revoked by the same authority. Several remonstrances were made against this innovation by Lubeck, Hamburg, and other Hans towns, but the council persevered in their resolution, and the good effects of it soon became visible to the nation. The English merchants, by their very situation as natives, had advantages above foreigners in the purchase of cloth, wool, and other commodities, though these advantages had not hitherto been sufficient to rouse then industry, or engage them to become rivals to this opulent company. But when aliens' duty was also imposed upon all foreigners indiscriminately, the English were tempted to enter into commerce, and a spirit of industry began to appear in the kingdom. About the same time a treaty was made with Gustavus Ericsson, king of Sweden, by which it was stipulated that if he sent bullion into England, he might export English commodities without paying custom, that he should carry bullion to no other prince, that if he sent Ozemus, steel, copper, etc., he should pay custom for English commodities as an Englishman, and that if he sent other merchandise, he should have free intercourse, paying custom as a stranger. The bullion sent over by Sweden, though it could not be in great quantity, set the mint to work. Good specie was coined, and much of the base metal formerly issued was recalled, a circumstance which tended extremely to the encouragement of commerce. But all these schemes for promoting industry 
were likely to prove abortive by the fear of domestic convulsions arising from the ambition of warwick that nobleman not contented with the station which he had attained carried further his pretensions and had gained partisans who were disposed to second him in every enterprise the last earl of northumberland died without issue and as sir thomas piercy his brother had been attainted on account of the share which he had in the yorkshire insurrection during the late reign the title was at present extinct and the estate was vested in the crown warwick now procured to himself a grant of those ample possessions which lay chiefly in the north the most warlike part of the kingdom and was dignified with the title of duke of northumberland his friend paulet lord st john the treasurer was created first earl of wiltshire then marquis of winchester sir william herbert obtained the title of earl of pembroke but the ambition of northumberland made him regard all increase of possessions and titles either to himself or his artisans as steps only to further acquisitions finding that somerset though degraded from his dignity and even lessened in the public opinion by his spiritless conduct still enjoyed a considerable share of popularity he determined to ruin the man whom he regarded as the chief obstacle to the attainment of his hopes the alliance which had been contracted between the families had produced no cordial union and only enabled northumberland to compass with more certainty the destruction of his rival he secretly gained many of the friends and servants of that unhappy nobleman he sometimes terrified him by the appearance of danger sometimes provoked him by ill usage the unguarded somerset often broke out into menacing expressions against northumberland at other times he formed rash projects which he immediately abandoned his treacherous confidence carried to his enemy every passionate word which dropped from him they revealed the schemes which they themselves had first suggested and northumberland thinking that the proper season was now come began to act in an open manner against him in one night the duke of somerset lord grey david and john seymour hammond and newdigate two of the duke's servants sir ralph vane and sir thomas palmer were arrested and committed to custody next day the duchess of somerset with her favourites crane and his wife sir miles partridge sir michael stanhope bannister and others was thrown into prison sir thomas palmer who had all along acted as a spy upon somerset accused him of having formed a design to raise an insurrection in the north to attack the gendarmes on a muster day to secure the tower and to raise a rebellion in london but what was the only probable accusation he asserted that somerset had once laid a project for murdering northumberland northampton and pembroke at a banquet which was to be given them by lord paget crane and his wife confirmed palmer's testimony with regard to this last design and it appears that some rash scheme of that nature 
had really been mentioned, though no regular conspiracy had been formed, or means prepared for its execution, Hammond confessed that the Duke had armed men to guard him one night in his house at Greenwich. Somerset was brought to his trial before the Marquis of Winchester, created High Steward. Twenty-seven peers composed the jury, among whom were Northumberland, Pembroke, and Northampton, whom decency should have hindered from acting as judges in the trial of a man that appeared to be their capital enemy. Somerset was accused of high treason on account of the projected insurrections, and of felony in laying a design to murder privy councillors. We have a very imperfect account of all state trials during that age, which is a sensible defect in our history, but it appears that some more regularity was observed in the management of this prosecution than had usually been employed in like cases. The witnesses were at least examined by the Privy Council, and though they were neither produced in court nor confronted with the prisoner, circumstances required by the strict principles of equity, their depositions were given in to the jury. The proof seems to have been lame with regard to the treasonable part of the charge, and Somerset's defence was so satisfactory that the peers gave verdict in his favour. The intention alone of assaulting the privy councillors was supported by tolerable evidence, and the jury brought him in guilty of felony. The prisoner himself confessed that he had expressed his intention of murdering Northumberland and the other lords, but had not formed any resolution on that head, and when he received sentence he asked pardon of those peers for the designs which he had hearkened to against them. The people by whom Somerset was beloved, hearing the first part of his sentence by which he was acquitted from treason, expressed their joy by loud acclamations, but their satisfaction was suddenly damped on finding that he was condemned to death for felony. Care had been taken by Northumberland's emissaries to prepossess the young king against his uncle, and lest he should relent, no access was given to any of Somerset's friends, and the prince was kept from reflection by a continued series of occupations and amusements. At last the prisoner was brought to the scaffold on Tower Hill, amidst great crowds of spectators, who bore him such sincere kindness that they entertained to the last moment the fond hopes of his pardon. Many of them rushed in to dip their handkerchiefs in his blood, which they long preserved as a precious relic, and some of them soon after, when Northumberland met with a like doom, upbraided him with this cruelty, and displayed to him these symbols of his crime. Somerset, indeed, though many actions of his life were exceptionable, seems in general to have merited a better fate and the faults which he committed were owing to weakness, not to any bad intention. His virtues were better calculated for private than for public life, and by his want of penetration and firmness he was ill-fitted to extricate himself from those cabals and violences to which that age was so much addicted. 
Sir Thomas Arundel, Sir Michael Stanhope, Sir Miles Partridge, and Sir Ralph Vane, all of them Somerset's friends, were brought to their trial, condemned, and executed. Great injustice seems to have been used in their prosecution. Lord Paget, Chancellor of the Duchy, was on some pretence tried in the Star Chamber, and condemned in a fine of six thousand pounds, with the loss of his office. To mortify him the more, he was degraded from the order of the Garter, as unworthy, on account of his mean birth, to share that honour. Lord Rich, Chancellor, was also compelled to resign his office, on the discovery of some marks of friendship which he had shown to Somerset. The day after the execution of Somerset, a session of Parliament was held, in which further advances were made towards the establishment of the Reformation. The new liturgy was authorized, and penalties were enacted against all those who absented themselves from public worship. To use the mass had already been prohibited under severe penalties, so that the reformers, it appears, whatever scope they had given to their own private judgment in disputing the tenets of the ancient religion, were resolved not to allow the same privilege to others. And the practice, nay, the very doctrine of toleration, was at that time equally unknown to all sects and parties. To dissent from the religion of the magistrate was universally conceived to be as criminal as to question his title, or rebel against his authority. A law was enacted against usury, that is, against taking any interest for money. This act was the remains of ancient superstition, but being found extremely iniquitous in itself, as well as prejudicial to commerce, it was afterwards repealed in the twelfth of Elizabeth. The common rate of interest, notwithstanding the law, was at this time fourteen per cent. A bill was introduced by the ministry into the House of Lords, renewing those rigorous statutes of treason which had been abrogated in the beginning of this reign. And though the peers, by their high station, stood most exposed to these tempests of state, yet had they so little regard to public security, or even to their own true interest, that they passed the bill with only one dissenting voice. But the commons rejected it, and prepared a new bill, that passed into a law by which it was enacted, that whoever should call the king, or any of his heirs named in the statute of the thirty-fifth of the last reign, heretic, schismatic, tyrant, infidel, or usurper of the crown, should forfeit for the first offence their goods and chattels, and be imprisoned during pleasure, for the second should incure a premunir, for the third should be attainted for treason, but if any should unadvisedly utter such a slander in writing, printing, painting, carving, or graving, he was for the first offence to be held a traitor. It may be worthy of notice that the king and his next heir, the Lady Mary, 
were professedly of different religions, and religions which threw on each other the imputation of heresy, schism, idolatry, profaneness, blasphemy, wickedness, and all the opprobrious epithets that religious zeal has invented. It was almost impossible, therefore, for the people, if they spoke at all on these subjects, not to fall into the crime so severely punished by the statute, and the jealousy of the commons for liberty, though it led them to reject the bill of treasons sent to them by the lords, appears not to have been very active, vigilant, or clear-sighted. End of section 42, chapter 35, part 3.